Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 13. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning, uh, looking there. And if you have your worship folders, I need to, to make one correction there, and it's, uh, we'll, just, uh, we'll do a positive spin like that. Matthew Johnson and I always, this time of year, some folks um, use the terminology Murphy's Law. Who has ever heard of Murphy's Law? Well, we call it the sab- sabbatical bug here. Uh, when the senior pastor is away, it's not a matter of if, but when, uh, things will just get a little mixed up. Uh, if you notice down there, I wasn't going to take my coat off or anything, but the first mic I had, I, it, was, it was probably the Indian and not the arrow. Uh, I, it just wouldn't work for me. So they, they gave me another one, and I was texting down there. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful, Tim, to the choir and music, but uh, I was trying to get to where you could hear me and to where I could not be leashed up to the, to the pulpit. Uh, so uh, I just, uh, we, it worked great. So that was one bug. And then the next one, you'll see the 11th hour. That would make a great title to a sermon. It's just not the one that I picked uh, for today. Um, the one we'll call the 11th commandment is, is what we're going to use today. But since it's the 11th hour, we need to learn a new commandment. But the title of the message today is the 11th commandment. Um, speaking of being leased up, Phil Waldrop um, I've known Phil since 1985. Matter of fact, a year ago, I got a package uh, UPS delivered to me here at the office, and it was a cassette tape. Now, most of you in here know what a cassette tape is. The, the second service may not realize what a cassette tape is. They, you know, they, they, what they'll do, they'll take their phone and Google it right when I say it. But a cassette tape, and it had Chuck Locke, Shaco, 1988. And uh, that's when I taught for Phil. Phil had a youth camp every year. And it was just, it was fantastic during spring break. It would, they, would, they would fill up Shaco, and we had to stay at hotels off campus. And there's not that many hotels, at least not then in Talladega, Alabama. Uh, and so he sent me a cassette, and I've yet to listen to it. I, I do not like to have self-embarrassment. So I knew then, I said, well, I don't know if he sent it to me to bring me down, down a notch or just as a, a gift. But uh, that's when I first met Phil Waltrip, and he invited me. I was a youth director at Gilgal Baptist Church in Duncanville, Alabama. And uh, so that's where I first met Phil Waltrip. So I highly recommend, be part of our awesome August, where we'll meet the first, third, and fifth Monday nights uh, in the month. We are looking forward to that. You know, in, in John chapter 13 this morning, this chapter begins really the account of the night before Jesus is crucified. The Gospel of John is different from the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that 90% of its material is unique. John's Gospel, compared to those others, does not focus on the miracles, the parables, and public speeches that are so prominent in those other accounts. Instead, the Gospel of John emphasizes, now listen, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and how we, as believers, should respond to his teachings. John tells far more about what Jesus said at the Last Supper than any other Gospel writer. Now, chapters 13 through 17 is telling us just what Jesus said and did the night before his crucifixion. The first 12 chapters of John cover a span of three years. But did you know chapters 13 and 18 cover one night, the night before his crucifixion? You know, if you look around us today, and we prayed this in our staff today, and I think I might even mention it as we prayed together a moment ago, the circumstances around us uh, can be overwhelming. The events that are going on around us certainly can cause anxiety. But I learned many, many, many years ago that the circumstances of life or the events that we find ourselves in, listen, do not make us who we are. They just reveal who we are. Now, that sink in for a moment. How we respond to what all we find ourselves in the middle of, whether it be the pandemic, financial losses, which are real, health challenges, absolutely, civil unrest, all those things do not make us who we are. They reveal who we are as believers. You know, you just look at it. Now we, in what's going on in the world, 
all the bickering and all the complaining and all the backbiting. I mean, you've got a governor suing a city. Our neighbor, the governor, is suing the city. I'm not going to get into all the political things. We just don't have time for that. But then you have the press secretary calling out a, a mayor of a city, and the mayor of a city tweeting back a response. It's like I'm in eighth grade again. And I, I mean it. It's just all these things are going back and forth. And what are we as believers, what are we commanded to do? Well, if you're physically able, stand with me, and we'll read not the entire chapter of John 13, but I just want to concentrate. And we'll go over the rest of the verses quickly as we, as we go through this morning. But for our purposes of reading together, join with me and look as I read. And your translation will be much like the one I'm reading for. Uh, from but John chapter 13, starting verse 31, and we'll go through 35. John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, disciples, Believers, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I tell you, and here it is, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have what? Family, love for one another. Father, may the words of your eternal being go deep within our finite souls. May it resonate with the spirit you have placed within us. And, Father, for those that have been redeemed by your blood this moment, may this encourage, convict, and cause us to take it to heart. And, Father, for those that are in between, that are not sure, that have not a relationship with you, but, God, that are looking, may this be the genesis of their salvation. Father, I pray your word does not return void. Thank you for that promise. May you anoint the words, Father, make me transparent. Father, mute anything that I'm coming up with. Amplify your words so that it will cause us to hear your heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now be seated. Thank you so much. Charles Spurgeon tells of a story of Archbishop Usher. And the Archbishop had just met a gentleman in his new parish named Mr. Rutherford. If you don't mind, uh, Charles Spurgeon is so eloquent in his uh, wording, I just want to give a direct quote in this illustration. So I'm going to read this. He says it much more beautifully than I can. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said in this encounter between Archbishop Usher and Mr. Rutherford. Quote, The Archbishop had heard of the wondrous power of Rutherford's devotion and of the singular beauty of the arrangement of his household, and he wished to witness it himself. But he could not tell how to do it until it occurred to him that he might disguise himself as a poor traveler. Accordingly, at nightfall, he knocked at the door of Mr. Rutherford's house and was received by Mrs. Rutherford. He asked if he could find lodgings there for the night, to which she answered yes, for they entertained strangers. She placed him in the kitchen and gave him something to eat, and it was part of her regular discipline on Saturday evenings to catechize the children. Now, just she, she did what? This means she uh, had spiritual teachings in a question and answer format. Okay, just for the, just for the, that's catechized. Just you've already learned something this morning. Okay, so that's that. So she was catechizing the children and the servants, and of course, the poor man in the kitchen came in among them. And as she went on, and she said, "Quote," uh, she put some questions to them. Uh, concerning the uh, commandments, and to this poor man she put the question, Sir, how many commandments are there? And he answered, Eleven. She said, Oh, what a sad thing that a man of your age 
whose hair is sprinkled with gray, should not even know how many commandments there are, for there is not a child in this parish above six years old that does not know the answer to that question. Well, the poor man, the archbishop, the poor man said nothing in reply. He ate his oatmeal porridge and went to bed. Later, he rose and listened to Mr. Rutherford's midnight prayer. And Spurgeon says he was charmed with it. He made himself known to Mr. Rutherford, borrowed a better coat from him, and preached for them the next Sunday morning, and surprised Mrs. Rutherford by taking as his text a new commandment I give to you. And by and by, commencing with that observation, that this mighty properly be called the 11th commandment. Archbishop went on his way, and the Rutherfords uh, shared meal with him on throughout his time there. And Spurgeon says this, It is the 11th commandment. And if the next time we are asked how many commandments there are, we answer 11, we shall rightly reply, enough. So upon that uh, little illustration, I'm saying this is the 11th commandment. And you say, but why is it a new commandment? Is it included? You know, you look at Mark 12:30, and it's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Lord is approved by the lawyer summary of the Ten Commandments. And you know this, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself. And how is this that we read today a new commandment? Well, we'll come back to it, but look there in verse 34. I give you a new command. Love one another how? Just as I have loved you. So this isn't in your outline, but jot down these three initial thoughts. And this is just kind of give us a preface of what we'll discover maybe in just four thoughts I want to share with you in just a few moments. But these three initial thoughts. This commandment is a new extension of love. A new extension of love. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves but we are to love our fellow believers, our fellow Christians, as Christ loved us. And that is far more than we love ourselves. Christ loved us better. Listen to me. Christ loved us better than himself. For he loved us so much that he gave himself for us. This is a nobler, this is a higher kind of love altogether to the love which we are to show our neighbors. That is a benevolent type of love. It is a good, good love. It is one that is commanded. It is one that is given. It is one that we should endeavor to do with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love our Lord, our God, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. But this love is a love of affinity and close relationship and involves a high degree of self-sacrifice. So this love, this 11th commandment, is one of a new extension. It's also backed by a new reason. The old commandment, which is still in effect, was backed by the declaration, I am the Lord your God, and I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Israelite, the individual, was to obey that law because of the redemption that God made for the nation of Israel. But we are commanded to love one another because Christ has redeemed us from far worse than Egypt. He has redeemed us from more bondage than they ever knew in Egypt with a far costlier price than sacrificial lambs. Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed and has been sacrificed for us. He has brought us out from under the iron yoke of sin. He has broken the bonds of Satan Our enemies have pursued us, but he has destroyed them, much like he did at the Red Sea for the nation of Israel. He has redeemed us with his own heart's blood. By the way, we need to be seeing more about the blood and seeing and know about the blood of Christ. But in relationship with us as, as blood kin, can I tell you what goes thicker than blood? Grace. Grace is thicker than blood. You and I are saved by grace through faith 
in Christ. And we sing about the blood, but as far as like in the human context, grace is thicker. It has an eternal covenant with it in that because of the blood of Christ. So that you love one another as I have loved you. Years ago, Harry Ironside, uh, an evangelist of of great renown, and just uh, if you ever read any of his sermons, he's just a phenomenal communicator. He told of a story that came from the reign of Tsar Nicholas I of Russia. The Tsar had assigned a young soldier to a military border fortress and put him in charge of the money to pay the soldiers there at that front. As the story unfolds, as Ironside tells it, the young man gambled away all of his money and a significant amount of the government funds in which he had been put in trust with. And one day he heard an official was coming to inspect the books, and he knew he was in serious trouble. He totaled the amount that he owed and wrote on the page for the examination in large letters, a great debt who can pay. He could not face the terrible dishonor the next day held for him, so he determined to kill himself at midnight. Well, Tsar Nicholas had acquired the habit of putting on the soldier, a common uniform of a common soldier instead of all his regalia. And when he visited troops, that's what he would do. He would do it almost incognito looking less like a regular soldier. He did that this very night, particularly looking for the young friend that he had put in charge of the money to pay the soldiers. He came to the barracks, and shortly before midnight, he saw the light on in one of the barracks and went on because the door was open, so he went on in. He found the young officer asleep. He looked at the books, and he read the note. In Ironside's words, he was moved with a generous impulse. The czar leaned over and he picked up the pen that had fallen off the hand of the sleeping officer and wrote just one word and eased his way out. The man slept well past midnight and he just woke up all of a sudden. He jerked and he was reaching for his revolver and he saw the note that he had written and he looked at it, a great debt who can pay, and he saw right under that Nicholas. He rushed to the files, being a friend of Nicholas, to find the signature of the czar, and he compared it with the signature on his note, and it was genuine. Now, remember that word, just genuine. We'll, we'll come, out, come back to it in a minute. He found out it was genuine. And he said to himself, the czar has been here tonight and knows all my guilt, yet he has undertaken to pay my debt. I need not die. Can I share with you? There is nothing unseen by our Lord. He knows everything. You know, we teach it to him and said, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's immutable, he never changes. But when you look at this, and hopefully this illustration brings on the point like it did me, there is nothing that he sees. Listen, we don't even have to write it down. We just know it in our hearts. He sees beyond what you and I can write. He knows exactly what's in our heart. So in the context of this new commandment today, especially in the circumstances that we find ourselves in the world, you may ask, but what can I do, Chuck? I mean, I want to share the good news with people, and I do, but I can't seem to convince them of its truth. You know, I, I grew up in the time my uncle and... My dad, to some extent, you know, it was, it was uh, we didn't have many of the Toyotas, and it was the Datsuns then, and Hondas. It was just, you had, you know what, you had Ford, then you had the other guys. That's what my family would say. And then you, the, that all built the same car and put a different badge on it. You had Buick and Pontiac and Chevrolet and Cadillac, but they, they, were, just, they were Ford people. And you know what, they, they wouldn't go to the store and buy this off-brand replacement. You know what they look for? Genuine Ford part. That's the only thing. I, I don't care if it costs $10 more. If it was a genuine Ford oil filter, that's what they used. Genuine Ford windshield wiper, that's what they bought. Everything had to be genuine. And I remember my uncle saying, he says, the reason I go with genuine parts is because you didn't trust them. They're the real deal. They're genuine. 
Have you ever used that to describe somebody? You know, we've, uh, we've met some new neighbors in our neighborhood, and they have just been so wonderful, and we've prayed together in our little prayer group each night that we meet in the, uh, the other neighbor's driveway, just praying about the pandemic and everything. And uh, gosh, the Lord has been doing that now for over, almost four months, uh, just praying together each night at 8 o'clock. It's the highlight of our day. Uh, you know, it's just we look forward to that. And so our new neighbors have moved in, and they've begun to pray with us, and Mike and I were talking and trying to find words to describe them. And we just, you know, they're so kind, they're so nice, and uh, they're so heartfelt. And we just, we paused when we was coming back from Tuscaloosa yesterday, and we said, you know what, they're just genuine. When you meet someone genuine, do you not trust them? There's no pretense. There's nothing that you have to figure out. Rich Crest, that is what God is calling us to do with each other. With those that are in sister churches in our city and our community. With those that we know as fellow followers of Christ, we are to be genuine lovers of each other. So this, this commandment is a new extension of love. It's backed by a new reason. And finally, the last point that's not on your outline that you can jot down. This commandment is enforced by new necessities. Believers in Christ ought to love one another because we are the subjects of one king. That is our Savior. We are this, I don't know, lack of a better word, we're, we're just a little band of brothers and sisters. We're, we're in the middle. Gosh, you look at the news and we realize I am surrounded by enemies that go against everything that I believe and hold dear. Christ said to his disciples, I send you as sheep in the middle of what? Wolves. True believers, listen to me, true believers cannot have the love of worldliness. We are not of this world. We are in this world, but this is not our home. As a believer and follower of Christ, I love this nation. But listen, eternally I am not a citizen of the United States of America before I'm a citizen of heaven above. That is my home. That is my citizenship. I love this country. I consider myself a patriot, but if I put myself, my citizenship here before that in heaven, I have missed the mark. And that in Scripture is sin. If we are guilty of that, then it's easy, I tell you this morning, in my opinion, it's easy to quantify our love for each other. Because then we determine, well, I just don't totally agree with them. And for somehow that may lessen or absolutely do away with my love toward them. To quote C.H. Spurgeon again, we are like, he says, quote, we are like a small company of soldiers in an enemy's country, strongly garrisoned by the vast battalions of the foe. So we must hold together. We must be as one, banded together in closest fellowship. As our great captain bids us, he says, God grant that the very fact that we are found in an enemy's country may result in making us more completely one than we have ever been before. And Spurgeon goes on to say, When I hear a Christian man finding fault with his minister, or can I add parenthetically, a fellow believer, I always, Spurgeon says, I always wish that the devil had found somebody else to do his dirty work. I hope that none of you will ever be found complaining about God's servants who are doing their best to help on the Lord's cause. There are plenty who are ready to find fault with them, and it is much better their faults, if they have faults, should be pointed out by an enemy rather than by you who belong to the same family as they do. And to end his quote, he says, Even if you should know that a professor or a minister or a fellow believer is a hypocrite, it may be the duty of a Christian to say, Let him fall by the hand of another. I would rather not give evidence against him. When I hear my master say, one of you shall betray me, I may have a shrewd suspicion that he is referring to Judas, but it will be wiser for me to say, Lord, is it I, rather than to ask, Lord, is it him? I don't know if that convicted you quite like it did me when I read it. 
But I'm, I am a cynic at heart. And if I'm not careful, that just, I, it goes into rampant skepticism. My, mm, I don't know about him. Ooh, well, be careful. Listen, I think that is a fine line I know, but the enemy is seizing upon that in the light and the day we're living in, and it's having us question folks that very well may share the same faith we share. Now in this John 13, now we're getting to the outline, and, and I, will be, I will be brief, so listen in a hurry. So in order to put this into practice, for lack of a better way to say it, Having known that the commandment is a new extension of love, it's backed by a new reason, and it's enforced by new necessities, how can we do this? How can we love one another? Well, let's look at the verses leading up to verses 31 through 35, shall we? In verses 1 through 11, we must accept His cleansing. In this 11th commandment, you and I must accept His cleansing. Now, it's just before the Feast of Passover, and though his disciples don't realize it, Jesus is about to transform the Passover meal into what we call today the Lord's Supper. Jesus knows it's almost time for him to depart out of the world that he was in and go to the Father. Therefore, he's devoting his last evening to teaching the disciples and preparing them for his death. The disciples still don't have a clue. Now, look, just hold your finger right there and look with me in chapter 22 of Luke. So go to Luke chapter 22. It's just a few pages over. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. All right? I'll give you time. That's a wonderful sound, by the way, of the pages going, even in a social di distance environment. Or they see the glow, maybe, of you swiping on your, on your device. But look, everybody look. Let's look. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. 22, 24. Is everybody there? Say amen if you got it. All right. This is what the disciples were doing. Then a dispute, an argument, nyan nyan. That's my, that's my interpretation right there. A dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Now what's going on? This is the last supper. This is the Passover. But what's on their mind? Who's doing better, guys? It's almost like who's got the, la the, the latest notch in their gospel gun belt? You know, you know what that means. If you just go out and you want to share the gospel with somebody and you get them saved and you just leave them, you don't even get their last name. I saved so many. You get that notch in your gospel gun belt. Well, I saved so many this past year. Really? Well, how are they now? Lord only knows. It's, 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 it's a mile wide and an inch deep, Tim. There, there's no depth to it. So they're just wondering, who's doing the best, guys? Is it him? Is it you? Who's best among us? And they're just nan yan so they have no clue what's going on in the significance of the evening. In spite of their self... Listen, and we're just like them. Let me add that, by the way. In spite of their selfish power-seeking, Jesus loved them until the end. That's in, in verse 1. As the disciples are eating and arguing about who would be the greatest in his kingdom, over in the corner, do you know what's there? It's that basin of untouched water... And in a, in a jar in an empty basin. It hadn't been touched. That was the tools by which they had to love one another. But they hadn't, they had, it, the dust was on it. As much dust on that as was on their feet. They hadn't even bothered to do it. They were more concerned about who was doing better and who was going to be the best in the kingdom. But the tool to which they were to love one another was left untouched until the master went and touched it. And that's what happened. So he went over there to the bar. He girded himself up with a towel. He went to the corner. He took off his outer garment, and he wrapped that towel around his waist like an apron, and he started pouring water in the basin. Then in verse 5, we see what is happening. Chapter 13 of John. So we're back in John 13, 5. So he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them. Now, what's interesting to me, he didn't go up and ask them. You know, is there anything I can do for you? You know, is, if we can pray for you, let us know. Is there anything we can do for you? No. He saw a need and met the need. As believers. Now, it's okay. So, hey, you know, let me know if we need to pray for you. Listen. The Spirit of Almighty God 
will speak to your spirit. And, it's, and we call it the God thing. But you will, you will know when someone needs something. If, you're, if we're loving one another, we don't have to have a billboard or wear a sandwich sign around our thing. And it's good to do that. But as believers that are listening to, to holy God, you, you can discern, there's, there's a church word, you can discern when something's going on. And you can approach to meet that need. You can get the basin, and you can get the jar, and you can go do it. That's what Jesus did. So the disciples were astonished that their master was a foot washer. The creator of the universe was washing dirty feet. Okay, this is just not some innocent toe jam. I mean, I'm sorry. The, the nasty Something you and I would, would leave to maybe somebody else. Or maybe glove up and mask up and make sure we got sanitizer on hand and, and go every cautionary method we can before we even get close to somebody. I, mean, I, I don't mean to start preaching on that, but you know what I'm talking about. We want to make sure I'm taken care of before we put ourselves at risk. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the pan- pandemic yet. But, I'm not, but it's seeing a need and maybe saying, what's going to cost me? Jesus is doing for them what they were too proud and too selfish to do for each other. All the disciples allowed Jesus to watch their feet into who? Peter. Well, you can always count on Peter. You know, my, my grandmother used to say, Peter needed to carry a bottle of vanilla around in his pocket. Because it's just a matter of time for his foot went into his mouth. It just needed to taste better going in. He's, he, he is going to speak his mind. He's going, to, he's going to say something. What he's thinking is going to come out. You know anybody like that? That's Peter. So he goes to Peter, and Peter says, you're not, you're not going to wash my feet. Now, he wasn't being mean-spirited. He was, no, Lord, that's, I'm not going to allow. You're not going to wash my feet. Look, but look in verse 8. How does Jesus respond? Peter says, you will never wash my feet ever, Peter said. The Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter, he might be just, he might say something, but it didn't take him long to figure things out. Look what he says next. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He says, I'm all in. Every bit, top to bottom, Lord, wash it all. Because what did he want more than anything else? To be part of Christ. To walk closely with him. Washing of feet symbolizes the need for cleansing. Unless, listen, Unless we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we cannot have a home in heaven. Peter seems to understand this. He says, wash me head to toe. Now, at that moment, Jesus is waiting with basin and towel in hand. Now, picture it now. We're not to that point of invitation, but we kind of are, so I'm just mixing things up on you. Christ is waiting now. For those that are here live and on campus, and for those that are watching online, that is the picture of Christ at this moment. Dear brothers and sisters, dear guests, dear church member, that is where Christ is now, waiting with that jar and with that basin to wash us, and not just our feet, but wash us with His blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but, I tell you what, let's, let's make, come on, Brother Tim. Let's mix things up. Let's, let's, let's sing that right now because I don't know what all the words, and certainly you can remember that. But let's just, let's just have, is this rehearsed? It's not, is it? But let's, let's just watch that. This, this may pick it up. or well, Let's sit over here. Let's sing that together, okay? He, he, he's going to lead us. He's got a better voice than I do. I'm not going to be like Brother Ray. He says, oh, one day Tim will sing as good as I can. I'm just going to say it honest. When he sings, I can tune in. If he sings the right note, I can get in there with it. So that's why I ask you up here. So let's, let's sing that. said, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You just start wherever you do, and I'll join in. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. 
because I have a good leader. But do you believe that? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus will make us whole, and that's the only thing that washes away our sins. So we must accept that cleansing. As believers, we all have been cleansed by faith in Jesus' death on the cross. But we are also in need of continual cleansing from sins we still commit. It's not like I'm greased to glory and I have no other worries. I was saved in 1972 in the old sanctuary of Ridgecrest Baptist Church with Jess Kennan preaching, clearing off the spot and pitching a fit. I was saved then. I was saved this morning as I prayed for this message. I will be saved this afternoon, I will be saved this week. Salvation is a sanctifying process. Not that I earn it over and over again. It is continually. God is saved, has saved me, and is saving me. Now, I have it. The moment I'm born again, I believe with all my heart, I'm eternally secure at that moment. But I'm continually cleansed because what? I continually confess my sins. Church, if we get out of that, we have fallen into the trap of pride and thinking that I'm glad I'm saved now because I'm not messing up anymore. Listen, just don't hold your breath. It's not a matter of if but when that I will mess up. Just I'm going to let you in on that nugget. It's called sin. And I dare say you're right in the same boat with me. When Peter asked Jesus to wash all over him, he answers, who has been bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he's completely clean. Only Judas was not clean because he had not accepted the words of Jesus. The acceptance, listen to me, the acceptance of Jesus' words makes us spiritually clean. And I, there's a lot goes into acceptance. When we trust in his words, we are saved forever. When we sin after that, we don't need to be saved again. We just need to go to him in confession and repentance of that particular sin. Like getting our feet washed so we can stay in fellowship with or close to Jesus. So to love one another, we must accept that cleansing. And secondly, we must attend to others. Verses 12 through 17, we must attend to others. When Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he returned to his place at the table and asked if they understood what he had just done. Then Jesus tells them this in verses 15 through 16. For I have given you an example that you should, all, you should do just as I have done to you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is not teaching that we must literally wash each other's feet, but what we must be willing to serve one another in love. Now, who's one another? It's, it's us. It's fellow followers of Christ. Modern-day foot washing or service to others can take many forms. Providing a meal for someone. This church does a marvelous job at that, especially if you've lost a loved one. Bob and I had a, a privilege and honor of sharing together in a funeral along with Brother Tim a few days ago, and we, we, they got to share a meal after that, and our church provided that meal. Why? Because we love them. It's not on our Constitution bylaws. You must give a meal to those who lose loved ones and, and die. No, it's just because we love them. That is a way we can show. Uh, paint, paint someone's porch. Do, a, do a, a, a job around the house for them. Provide child care for that, for that weary young couple. You know, go watch them. Even in, in this setting that we have social distance, they may need some time out just for a sanity night. Be that child care for them. Be that surrogate grandparent, grandmother, grandfather, aunt, uncle. Mow their lawn. Lend a compassionate ear. Take time to listen and encourage. And then in verse 17, let's look at that. 
we see how Jesus is describing the result of doing something to attend the needs of others. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you what? Do them. He's talking to disciples, and I know we've talked about it in this before, but here's the definition of disciple. Thought, I know it, accompanied by an endeavor. Listen, we're not disciples of Christ if we just know it and don't do it. We just might have our name on the roll. A church role, not the role up yonder. The word disciple is more than just a follower of a given teacher or doctrine. It's more than just someone who reads whatever devotion you read each morning. Whether it be my utmost words highest or my daily bread, open windows, whatever it is. A disciple is knowing something and doing something. Jesus said it. Look again, verse 17, look at it. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You will not be happy. I will not be happy if we know or think about these things and we do not do them. When Jesus is washing these feet, these dirty feet of his disciples, listen, he gave dignity to serving others and he showed us how to be like him. There are two kinds of people in the world, my grandmother used to say, givers and takers. Guess which group is the happiest? It's the givers. Always. They give of themselves. To love one another as Jesus loves us, we must accept his cleansing. We must attend to others. Then thirdly, we must avoid hypocrisy. This is in verses 18 18 through 30. We're getting close to what we're uh, started off in in 31 through 35. But Jesus is to the point where he's finally telling his disciples about the events of this meal leading about uh, the prophecy of the Messiah. Then he quoted Psalm 41.9. You don't have to turn there, but I've got my handy-dandy little ribbon right in place. Psalm 41.9, the Lord says, and this is what the uh, psalmist says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And now this expression is a picture of a horse with a swiftly dead kick. You've seen those things probably on Facebook or whatever, and you, a guy's behind the horse, and he kicks him, and he goes clear across the field, and he's just flying around, flailing around. And, but if you've ever been behind a horse, one, I question your sanity and your common sense. You just That's not where you want to be for many reasons. We won't get into all that, but for a myriad of reasons, you just don't want to be on the backside of a horse, especially if he's ready to raise his leg. He will put, it, it will be bad and not good. It will put a hurting on you. That's the picture of what's going on here. Knowing Judas would betray him, Jesus has Judas as a disciple to fulfill the prophecies of betrayal. Now listen to me. Judas was not programmed, he was not manipulated, and he was not tricked by God. He gave into his own wicked desires of greed and ambition. God simply doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He is not a tempter in this. So this, this Judas, the Lord knew who it was going to be. Even when he was there and being chosen because, I mean, think about it. Who do you get to handle the money? Well, you get the finest among us. Man, we need to trust him. We need to get a good guy to handle the money. We need to trust him. So it's not like they said, he's a snake in the grass. Let's choose him to have money. No, they, they knew him to be a good man, but it, he wasn't that way on the inside. Do you get what I'm stepping into? That is the epitome of hypocrisy. Trying to put on fronts where you can convince people of how good you are and they can trust you, but knowing always inside your heart there's a void that's Christless, that's without love for Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, without love for your neighbor, and certainly without love for the brother because technically they're not your brother. You're an illegitimate child. So this is Jesus telling them in advance so they won't be surprised when Judas betrays them. Then he goes on in verse 19, and the Lord says in verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so then it does happen 
you will believe that I am he. The word he is not in the Greek text from what I could find out in, in studying this. So Jesus is referring to himself as the great I am. The divine name of God, going back to Exodus chapter 3. The disciples may have thought having a traitor in their midst would destroy their credibility and the plans that the Lord had for them. But in spite of Judas, they will soon be Jesus' representatives in the civil world. Now listen, in spite of things that's happened within an imperfect body, we are still in position, Ridgecrest, we are still in position, churches in Dothan, we are still in position, churches in America, for those that believe in Christ Jesus the Lord, of his perfect redemption, of his perfect word, of his almighty power, we are still in position to be that representative. So Jesus is preparing them for the Great Commission, and he will say, I assure you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me, verse 20 of chapter 13. This statement is preparing the disciples for something you and I know, but they didn't know it this time, and it's in verse 21. Look there with me, chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. Now, according to Matthew, after hearing there's a traitor in their midst, each disciple begins to ask, is it me? Is it I? Going back to, the, to that analogy, that illustration that we had, that should be our question. Not saying, well, I wonder who it is. Well, I, I think I may know. I mean, they hadn't been here in a month of Sundays. I hadn't seen them. And Lord knows I've seen them out when I've gone out to eat, and I just don't want to tell you about all that. So I, I think that's them. That, yeah, that's them. That is not the mindset that Christ is talking about. That is not loving one another. So it's interesting to me that in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22, they said, is is, is it I, Lord? But Judas said this in verse 25 of Matthew 26, surely not I, Rabbi. He didn't call him Lord. And I found, I found that striking to me. I mean, I've seen it before, but it really sunk in this past, past couple of weeks. Judas never called Jesus Lord because he was not a true believer. And, and many commentators say he never was. Not to get bogged down in another message, but you may, may be asking, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus, Judas repented? Well, in, in older translations, in Matthew 27, 3, it does use that word. But the more accurate definition of what's going on there, from what I could find out in leading other commentators, is he was seized with remorse. Now listen, listen carefully. Although Judas was gripped with the wrongness of what he had done, he never asked for forgiveness. There's a world of difference, church, of being seized with the remorse and going to ask for forgiveness. Y'all tracking with me? There's a chasm of difference there. Many people who truly feel sorry for their sins never go to God and ask for forgiveness. Judas tried to undo his betrayal on his own. I mean, he threw, he threw the coins there, all 30 of them, which he hadn't even counted, threw them. And I don't doubt for a bit he, he, he wept bitter tears as he threw that money back into the temple. But his remorse... His remorse, as sincere as it was, from everything that I could believe, was not true repentance. And it did not lead to forgiveness. It led instead to suicide. Now, here's the takeaway for you and I. We can, be, we can feel sorry for something. Oh, Lee, I'm sure I'm sorry I did that. But until we go, first of all, to the Lord and repent from that, and seek his forgiveness, then what we're just doing is, is just saying, oh, I'm sorry I did that. But there's no change of heart. Where are we today in the context of this message with loving one another? Let it not be that we just go out here saying, oh, Lee, you know, Chuck was right when he, when he, when he quoted that scripture. and Man, I hate that I hadn't done that. Y'all want to go to Blue Plate, or is it you think Bojangles is crowded? Does it lead to heart change? So in order to love others, 
We must accept his cleansing. We must attend to others. We must avoid hypocrisy. Then finally, and I use this word, and we, I know, but I, I didn't want to put love others because one, it didn't start with an A, and I was trying to alliterate in this. But we must agape others. I know we don't use that much in sentences today, but here's why I chose that. It is that special kind of love. It's not phileo love. It's not an eros kind of love. It is agape love. That's what's talked about. So after Judas leaves the room, after Satan has taken over from him, after he has taken the bread, and it was talked about in, in, in the passage we read from Psalm, after all that had happened, none of the disciples understood what Jesus was saying. So he left the room, and after he left the room, Jesus looked beyond the crucifixion that it was going to happen in his resurrection and says this in verses 31 through 32. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Then Jesus tells the disciples he is only going to be with them a little longer and they cannot come with him. Then he says in verse 34, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. This word is translated agape. It means sacrificial love. This is a command for a new degree of love. We mentioned that in the beginning. It's the love that true followers of Christ possess and cannot keep to themselves. And it can be seen. Not to go into great detail, but in the past year, Monk and I have learned more about this kind of love than we ever thought humanly possible. To have brothers and sisters in Christ love on you makes a difference. It's not something we got out and tried to solicit, but people just knew. And so that was kind of the catalyst to me learning this and Brother Ray has told me, and many others have told me, have mentored me in preaching, you want to preach from the overflow of your personal life. So I've experienced this. And can I tell you as a recipient, it has caused such change in my life and Monica's life that I would not undo anything that was a precipitated the love of brothers and sisters. So I, I use that to encourage and challenge you. Love one another. Agape love. Sacrificially love one another. Agape is not something we can manufacture. You can, do, you can manufacture phileo love. You can be kind to people. You can, you can have benevolent love. You can manufacture that. But you cannot manufacture agape love. You cannot, it cannot be produced within ourselves. It is the love God pours into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. Continuing to use the word of agape, Jesus says in, verses 30, in chapter 13, verse 35, By this shall all people will know that you are my disciples. With everything going around, is it my job to convince people that I'm right? I beat myself silly doing that. I'll have to go see Reggie every day. No. If we love one another, then the, the genuineness God will take care of. He says, everybody will know that you're a disciple of mine. He didn't say they're going to be convinced of being a believer. They say they will know who you are if you love one another. As Christ loved you in that sacrificial way. Now, Chucks, how is that possible? I don't have that answer. I'll, I'll say it's supernatural. Lord takes care of it. He makes it known. And I'd rather him make it known than me even try my best to make it known. So when Jesus makes this statement, he listen, and we're almost done. He is giving the world the right to judge us by our love. 
I want to say that again. When Jesus made that statement, By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another as I have loved you. He is giving the world the right to judge us by our love. The doctrines we believe or the churches we attend, as important as those are, listen to me, know my heart, they do not convince the world that we're followers of Christ. By you attending today does not convince the world that you're a follower of Christ. By you watching online does not convince the world that you're a follower of Jesus. By you writing out a check to Ridgecrest Baptist Church does not convince the world that you're a follower of Christ. By you checking off every box you can on that little envelope or wherever in your heart, that does not convince the world that you're a disciple of Christ. The only thing, the only thing that Scripture says that convinces the world that you're a disciple of Christ if we have love one for another as Christ loved us. I do not know of anything more that commends a Christian to his fellow believer than a true spirit of love. I read a story many years ago, and uh, if you study church history, you, you, you talk about all the people and the great theologians, and uh, three of them came apart in a story and combined with each other. John Wesley, many of you know and heard of John Wesley. And uh, how about Augustus Toplady? Has anybody ever heard of Augustus Toplady? Any, any theologians in the house? Augustus Toplady. Well, good, so I don't have to be accurate. You don't know if I'm telling the truth or not, then, then I am. So there, there's, there's, there's John Wesley and Augustus Toplady. They were rivals. One was, not to get into the, open up a can of worms, but one was Calvinist, one wasn't. Okay, John Wesley wasn't. Augustus Toplady was. And they had, they had heated conversations. How about that? And it turned into to debate. Then, Brother Tim, the human heart got involved. And I tell you what, they were downright mean to each other. Who in here have ever heard say some of the meanest people are church people? Except everybody in this room. I'm not talking about you, okay? And you online, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who aren't here or not watching. But listen, church people can be mean people. Amen or oh me, you savor the one. But this, we, I can. We, we can be mean. Well, listen, they were mean to one another. Then along comes George Whitfield. George Whitfield was trying to, listen, guys, this, this is not right and all those kind of things. And, and somebody came up to George Whitfield who happened to be kind of on top lady's side. And he was kind of debate. He's going to bait Whitfield into saying something. He said this, Mr. Whitfield, do you think that when we get to heaven that we shall see John Wesley there? And Whitfield in divine wisdom said, no, I do not think we shall. The questioner was very delighted with that answer. But Whitfield added, I believe that Mr. John Wesley will have a place so near the throne of God that such poor sinners and creatures as you and me will be so far we will hardly be able to see him. So no, I don't think we'll see him when we get to heaven. That's Christian love. That's taking the high road, so to speak. Listen, it's, you can't explain what's going on in our world today. We were on a Zoom call, and Pastor was on there as well with a good friend of his, Willie Rice, uh, Pastor at Calvary Clearwater. And he said, listen, you, God bless them, all these people that are writing blogs and these little booklets on how to handle the pandemic. He said, I want to ask them, were they around in 1918? I mean, what? How can, how can you know how to handle it? Man, I, I know just as much as you do. We're all learning by trial and error here. The one thing that you and I know, listen, the one thing, if you were redeemed in here this morning, if you, if, you were, if you were redeemed online, the one thing that you know how to do because the Spirit of God resides in you is to love one another. Love your brother and your sister in Christ. Agape love with sacrifice as the Holy Spirit leads you to love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, that it's perfect, it's without error, it it, it divides the bone and marrow. And Father, if we allow you to, you transform those things within us that cause us to fall short. Father, I pray at this moment you would find us faithful and humble 
if you're calling us, God, in these words to repent of something, to turn away as we confess it, God, not to be guilty of just feeling remorse and being seized by that, but God, to go in repentance to your throne with all humility and say, I am wrong, I confess this. Father, would you wash it away from me? God, that's what we need. So, Father, in this moment, would you lead us to be genuine, to accept your cleansing, to attend to others, Father, and God, to finally agape, to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.